it's no regular show. It's the Sink or Swim podcast. Nice. Tuning up, very insightful. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. <laughs> Didn't you know, even own that. Once you just have a John Williams <laughs> level of talent like me, you can just immediately slip into the correct key. Perfect pitch, though. Perfect pitch, yeah. I didn't even know you owned that. <laughs> <laughs> Where is that from? I bought it especially. <laughs> That's incredible. Thank you very much. Uh, so, welcome back to the Sink or Swim podcast. If indeed you are a returning listener, if not, welcome to that fucking mess for the first time. Uh, I'm Prentice, and with me is my good mate Jules. Hello. How are you doing, Julius? Julius Pestano. Are we, 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 are we, are we debuting this, this concept, are we? I hope we're... Debuting? You've always been Panther Cop. <laughs> Panther Cop. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm a bit nervous about this. Because although like we're not, we're not exactly drowning listeners, I still like... I don't know, it feels like what we're doing, we're doing obviously, is you would... I'd be surprised if you didn't know, we're doing a Star Wars special. Um, May the 4th be with you. Um, Indeed. But, oh yeah, happy May 4th, yeah, this is going out, happy May the 4th. And yeah, I don't know, it, it just was such a such a thing, like, in terms of like film scores and like film music, this, this is kind of one you can't fuck up, mm. this is like one of the big, ten- this is like the equivalent of doing pet sounds, of like, if we were doing music podcasts or something, mm. so yeah. But- yeah, def- definitely, I, f- I slightly felt that pressure, especially like in like the research, you just like, I mean, I mentioned to you mentioned this to you briefly yesterday but like reading about john williams body of work is is dizzying like i genuinely felt it dizzy and going through did researching about him and reading about what he's achieved and stuff like let alone like it's just incredible to imagine like that life <laughs> like i found it difficult to even con- like conceive of his career reading about it and he did it he did that shit yeah it's, it's uh, yeah he must I, I, you know, I, by all accounts, from, from what I've read and what I've seen, he's quite a modest man somehow, and um, he, he just must look at what he's done and be like, you know what, I'm pretty fucking good at what I do. Yeah. Like, because yeah, I, it, he's so prolific. It, I, I almost got angry. I was yeah. like, I was like, no, no, How is that you, fair? You have, you haven't done that as well. Fuck off. <laughs> so yeah, we're gonna go into our kind of nonsense newsy <laughs> yeah nuggets of, of bullshit that we've been thinking about this this we kind of ditched a new segment because of the way we record and because of the way our output is and stuff so we just we just kind of talk about things that we find interesting and um so yeah we're just going to go into like some stuff that we find interesting and then there'll be time codes below but yeah you can you can go into the description and see when we actually start talking about star wars but um yeah so i think obviously one of the big things for us this like recently is um birdman and the unexpected virtue of vibranium wings has wrapped up uh last <laughs> oh. week oh uh, i thought you were talking about harvey whatever it's called that adult swim <laughs> show and i was like what what is this a skill reference yeah no Karen. um so yeah yeah so that's um you know finished on uh, disney plus to um you know kind of like for the most part pretty Quite positive applause, i would call it yeah 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 smatter yeah smatterings of applause like, yeah it's not you know like G- generally positive uh, my, well, I came, my initial phrase was serv- serviceable to good like that it was like a good show with great episodes yeah maybe that's the way to do it because like definitely yeah because they had like episode 5 was great mm-hmm. um, but then yeah you know it was up and down so yeah like I don't know we you know as you heard from there we, we kind of yeah I, I liked it you liked it it's kind of generally good stuff all around um, we did sort of consider because obviously we did WandaVision for our first episode and we were sort of slightly considering doing a Falcon of the Winter Soldier episode and about sort of halfway f- or four episodes into the season, we were like, yeah, we probably made the right choice not to do it because it's just, there's not the same level of stuff. Yeah. And then in episodes five and six, we just got slapped with some <laughs> absolutely cracking bits of sync. Yeah. We were just like, oh, these songs are real. Like, we were just taking out our phones and sh- Shazam and these great like funk and soul tracks and stuff. And it was like, oh God. But I still don't think obviously it's all the way there. Still not enough, yeah. For, for a whole kind of thing. But I wondered if there's anything sort of in the in your... Is there anything that comes to, to come to mind? Do you sort of remember any of the stuff in yeah, the show that sticks out to you? There's three uh, three tracks, two two um, bits of like soundtrack, so like previously released music and then one bit of score. So there's a, a reworking of 
Star Spangled Man, which plays in the original Captain America film, mm. where Steve Rogers is announced as like the new poster boy, um, and they sort of they sort of brass banded it up. Yeah, sort yeah. Of, um, high school banded it up. Yeah, and it sounds pretty cool to be honest. Quite interesting as well because I don't know I don't know if we spoke about it, but a lot of that band are black, which is quite yeah. cool as well. Yeah, they are black, and um, and it definitely has like this lively kind of like jazzy kind of like it's got a real like soul to it in the way that I think you know kind of young black musicians would bring to it in a way that maybe like a big crowd of white college musicians might not uh, yeah. bring that same kind of your words not mine no, it's, 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 more, it's more the energy and the yeah, performance yeah. style you know what I mean like, no, there's, I, there's no, definitely no. obviously a difference it's got that more kind of like a party kind of thing it's, it's so like energetic and like kind of yeah, lively yeah, it's, and, it's got the funk although yeah. it's not actually funky but yeah, and also ironic as you said, like the the white musicians for, for a black musicians for introducing a white Captain America. Yes, given yeah. the context of the show, mm. uh, and then two bits of I can't I can only remember one of the one of the bits of sync, but I know another band. So there's a song by the Meters, mm-hmm. which yes. is really cool. Bit well, that's a really cool little nugget. Yeah, um, which I can't even where that plays, but that was just that was a surprise. Something quite as I think it was in five. That's the name of the song. No, no, no. I think it was in episode oh. five. Uh, okay. At the start of episode five, when Sam goes back home for a bit. Okay, yeah, yeah. After they, that's when a lot of the music is actually. That's a lot when all the soul music is. Yeah, so there's home. there's chocolate samurai by Fantastic Negrito and in, in that sort of section of episode five as well, which is fucking excellent. Yeah. And then I think the the big one for me is in the final episode, On and On by Curtis Harding. Yeah. Which is a song I'd never heard before, but it's mm. one of those songs that I'm just like, I wish I'd heard this years ago. This is fucking like amazing. Yeah. Like, I love this. That that closes out the series, doesn't it? It's yeah. uh, pretty cool that. Yeah. So uh, I don't know, what what else have you what else has been in your sort of I got uh, two bits. So one is I don't really want to spend too much time talking about awards because I'm sick to the teeth of them. Mm. Even even I am. Um Feel, but, really feels like award ceremony like the season goes on feels like, like it months. gets longer. Yeah, it goes on like, for like every months. year I'm like, why is this so spaced out? <laughs> yeah. I think it's also COVID, they've had to space them out a bit more. Yeah, maybe. But, um just but there is one bit of news uh, in particular that I'm really sort of like it's quite a uh, big moment actually, I think. This gone a little bit under the radar for, for what the achievement is. Danny Kudo won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor uh, even though he's technically the lead actor, which still puzzles my brain, mm. but um, he won Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal of Fred Hampton mm. in Juice and the Black Messiah. From what I've heard, like very well deserved. Yes, from by all accounts. From the clips I've seen, yeah, it's it's, it's uh, yeah, I think it's going to be one of his better performances. It's one of his better performances, but yeah, it's, he's the first Black Brit, uh, first Black Brit to win a, an Oscar for for anything for any of the leading. Um, Acting roles, you know, the big four temple, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is which is very there's that thing of like I feel very proud, oh, yeah, yeah, I feel very proud that he that he's the first person to do that, yeah, because um, like he's he's been across the pond for a while now and he's been bringing it, like he's fantastic, he's one of our he's one of our major talents at the moment that we've sort of exported. So it's it's obviously as we've spoken about with awards before. They're bullshit, but they do also kind of matter because of like the ramifications of winning awards. So it's whilst they are bullshit, and we should also roll our eyes out, and we should also make sure that people like diverse and representative groups of people are nominated and win these awards. And and, and despite all of that, like it's 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 good to see him having gone over there and doing what he does, and and is now being recognised for it. Despite me not giving a fuck what the awards bodies yeah, think, yeah. I'm glad that Kalua has been recognised for his talent. There's there's a brilliant video um, that people should check out if they haven't. It's um it's after he's got his award and everything. He um which is in itself his speech was incredible. This has been gone viral because uh, he referred to his mum having sex with it and then him being born and his mum's reaction has gone viral. <laughs> um, but um yeah, there's a there's a there's a clip going around of him um, with Dave the rapper. Um, oh yeah, and he's like backstage with him and like there he sort of like. Being, they're just so excited about it, and they're sort of like again they they talk about what I've just talked about you know like boys from the estate you know you know well both both of them you know boys from the estate one's got a Mercury Prize one's got an Oscar yeah and it's like yeah even though you know we said that it's kind of you know if if these are still held up as you know the physical representations of success mm. then it's you know it's quite a it's quite a mountain to climb for both of them yeah so I just think yeah it, it's uh, it was, but if they are, I was very surprised at how much it kind of moved me that he won. Mm. Um, so it's definitely it's definitely important and definitely due. And he's also done it playing like pretty political roles as well. Yes, you know yeah. his, his his discography features Get Out filmography. Sorry, what did I say? Discography. Oh, well, he's got a great voice. <laughs> um, features Get Out, uh, which is obviously one of the sort of 
premier like social satires of the mm-hmm. last few years. Mm-hmm. Quinn Slim, which is a comment on police brutality. Mm-hmm. Um, Excellent film, by the way. Yeah. If nobody's if you haven't seen that out there, watch that. Yeah, that's that's a super film. One of the only films in this to, to have me cry in the cinema. Yeah. Um, also, he's in like a small role, but he's also in Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his his filmography the last um, few years has been like quite. He seems to have picked his roles, and it's a lot. Yeah, I think it says quite a lot about him. Yeah. Um, following on from that, um, just quickly, um, another sort of recommendation uh, is um, a documentary that the trailer just dropped for. It's called Summer of Soul, mm-hmm. uh, and it's Questlove, uh, the drummer from The Roots. Am I correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, before you push on with this, just because I have something that's relevant to oh. what we were just talking about. Yeah. Um, did you see Anthony Hopkins also thank um, Chadwick, Bo- or, or sorry, um, pay tribute to Chad- Chadwick Boseman in his acceptance speech? I didn't. I saw it, but I didn't literally see it. You know, what yeah. I, mean? I know it happened. But I didn't see it. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was really nice. It, that's definitely worth a watch. It's a really nice short kind of moment okay. where like one one great recognises another. Uh, um, and, and again, with the, with the kind of themes of what's being discussed at the moment around awards and stuff, it's it's kind of kind of powerful to see this man like say like more shit, like everyone should recognise the greatness of, of, you know, this man who doesn't look like me, but like I acknowledge him as, you know, like another fucking great. Sorry, carry on. No, no, um, it's cool. Um, yeah, so it's, it's the documentary by Questlove, who's the drummer from The Roots, um, and it's about the 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival, which happened uh, same year um, and roughly the same time as Woodstock, mm. um, but obviously it, it's nowhere near as famous for obvious reasons. And yeah, it, it's a, yeah, it's just a big sort of outdoor... They, they refer to it colloquially as like Black Woodstock, so it has... It's just a big music festival, and it's got some really... Interesting. You had like um, the acts who performed there, and um, who were subsequently in the documentary, uh, Nina Simone, uh, Sly and the Family Stone, and uh, Stevie Wonder, just to name like three. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of like a sort of. It was not just like Black Joy. There was also quite a, like a political edge to it as well, given yeah. the time. Well, given the time and its location. Location, yeah, and the security of the event. There were no police. The event was the security for the event was run by the Panthers. Mm. Uh, and in the video, you can see Panthers in the background. You got like um, you can see like Sly and the Family Stone like belling out a tune, and then just like pans across to like those cool souls, sisters and brothers in there, there with their afros. And then you've got like and you got like the, the Panthers just like oh, <laughs> that's like, that's really cool. It comes out second of July um, in the US. It comes out on Hulu, but it will be coming to Disney Plus at a later date. Excellent. So um, I'm looking forward to that. It looks mm-hmm. really nice in like, the way they've done it as well. I I don't know the ins and out of the production but it looks like they're trying to, trying to make it look as like as of the time as possible like, okay it looks quite filmy and grainy it's kind of cool if anyone's interested in that and you're looking for something to watch in the meantime try and find the Wattstacks um, film of that of the Wattstacks festival or just look up some of the performances on YouTube some of that is just incredible like it's so electric but yeah, I've just got one more thing that sort of occurred to me this week, and it's not really anything timely or, or newsworthy, but I just thought it was funny for a variety of reasons. So you've been making your way through Parks and Rec recently, haven't you? I have been making my way through Parks and Rec. Yeah, and so obviously Rashida Jones plays like a big part in, in that show. She's one of the core characters. Yes, yeah. And um, I discovered relatively recently just in like doing a bit of, because I've been watching a bit of Parks and Rec when you've been watching it as well, so I'm sort of about a third or a quarter of the way as familiar as you are with it. Um, and I was just sort of reading about the cast members and reading about the show and stuff like that and um, came across that Rashida Jones is married to um, uh, what's his face um, Ezra Cohen uh, uh, that's it yeah Ezra, Ezra Co- is it Cohen or Koenig Koenig, I think it's Koenig. Ezra Koenig um, but either way anyway yeah so the lead singer of Vampire Weekend and um, and also her father is Quincy Jones yeah that's mad that's and absolutely mad I just found the idea of like family dinner just hilarious that like the the like the the lead, her boy, her boyfriend or husband this 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 kind of slightly fey Jewish boy from this indie band going around to Quincy Jones's house for for like Sunday tea or whatever they just meet at the door and they have a hug or whatever and uh, you know he's like oh hey hey, hey dad or whatever you know and he's like hey Ezra baby and all that and then they go they go and sit at the table whatever, and he's like Ezra come over here. Let me tell you, the Beatles, fucking cowards. They're fucking cowards. And Hendrix, I know you love Hendrix. He ain't shit. <laughs> Did he say that? Was, I know he said something about the Beatles. Did he say something about Hendrix? He said Hendrix is a coward. What was For refusing reason? to play with like jazz musicians who are more talented than him. 
He tried, apparently he tried to get him into the studio to record with like some incredible like flautists and stuff like that. And like upon like he, like hearing some of their work and how brilliant they were, he like bailed. <laughs> <laughs> and so Quincy Jones has been calling him a coward. Um, yeah, if you don't know what I'm referencing, go back and read Quincy Jones. I believe it's a Vanity Fair interview. That could be if you just type in Quincy Jones controversial interview, you'll be able to find it. It's hilarious. Quincy Jones basically just shits across on the entire music industry. And like just take shots at basically everyone he's ever encountered. It's hilarious. He basically outs Richard Pryor and Marlon Brando as having had a relation <laughs> as like a gay relationship, like in secret. He called yeah, he says the Beatles are the worst players he's ever seen. Hendrix is a coward. Um Oh, it's it's just hilarious. It's it's one of the most batshit things. He talks about how he used to date Trump's daughter. What? <laughs> <laughs> Are these? Is, is there anything to back these up, or are these just wild claims? <laughs> who fuck? Who the fuck knows? So yeah, obviously, for as you've seen by the title, we are doing a new hope this week um, in as uh, part of our celebration for May the Fourth. So yeah, we're going to be going through kind of the history of of the score itself. Um, like so we'll talk about John Williams, we'll talk about the way the music's used in the film, and uh, and yeah, we'll sort of make it. So I, I thought a good place to start. And um, normally, when I do these sorts of things, I, I start by talking about like the director. And uh, going back through their body of work a bit and like what they've done over their career. And then I'll talk about the composer and, and go back through what they've done and stuff. But you just, you don't need it for these guys. Like everyone knows, like George Lucas has not got the most expansive body of work, but everyone knows he's the Star Wars guy. Yeah. And the Indiana Jones guy, like Lucasfilm. I mean, it all speaks for itself, basically. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not even going to bother with that. But I am going to give you some um, some sort of backstory on um, John Williams, just to set the scene of like where he comes from and, and what he's achieved throughout his life. So John Williams, I believe he was from one of the boroughs of New York. I should have written it down to, to be honest, but I, I can't remember which one it was. Now I'm going to say Queens very tentatively. He again, uh, again, I haven't written this down, but he wasn't born there, but he grew up there. Yes, yeah, he moved yeah. there. He, he moved there up. when he was young, very young. Yeah, he actually started off really as a pianist and trombonist. And um, was actually more of a jazz player than than a, than a classical player or, or a composer or anything. So um, yeah, not only is he a composer and conductor, but also a pianist and trombonist. And um, we'll jump forward a bit because just to tell you like like what this man has done. Oh, I, I know I said I wasn't going to go through his body of work, but can I jump in? I've got a cool. Bit, I've got a cool little bit of um, trivia about him, mm-hmm. um, which kind of relates to his early life. So before we get to his work, his dad uh, was also he was a, he was a famous. Um, well, not famous. He was he played in like orchestras um, and he was a musician. Yeah, and he worked on music for Citizen Kane, Vertigo, and Psycho um, oh. because he because he worked with um, Bernard Herrmann. Oh, okay, the famous, yes, famous um, film composer who did like all the like. Right, the... you said John Williams' dad worked on those yeah. films. Okay. Yeah, as a yeah. musician under the under the like the direction of an um, orchestration Bernard of Bernard Herrmann. Yeah, cool. And if you want to keep the lineage going, John Williams' son is Joseph Williams, lead singer of Toto. Yep. The lead singer of Toto is John Williams' son. Incredible. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. Oh, oh, wow. What a musical lineage. That might be the best bit of trivia you've ever dropped on this, <laughs> on this podcast. That's incredible. It's insane, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, just to give you an idea of this man's achievements, not fair. John Williams himself, he has composed the music for Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Superman, E.T., Home Alone, all the Indiana Jones films, most of the Jurassic Park films, Schindler's List, the first three Harry Potter films, Fiddler on the Roof, The Poseidon Adventure, The Tower and Inferno, and TV shows like Lost in Space, Land of the Giants, and Gilligan's Island that all have iconic themes in their own right on television. So when you take all that into, like, keep that in mind, he's composed the score for eight of the top 25 highest grossing films of all time. Is that all? Yeah. But, I mean... I'm joking. <laughs> honestly, I know. I know. But also, like, you can look at that either way as, like... I wouldn't be surprised if it was more, but also eight is insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Given that he's he he's only been scoring for like so films in that time of before him and after him. So yeah. Right? Um, oh, with fifty-two Academy nominations, he's the second most nominated individual after Walt Disney himself. And also, that doesn't really count because Walt Disney, like, is just the head of the company that wins all the awards. Exactly. He's doing fuck all. So exactly. Apart from being a racist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Gotta yeah. that out. <laughs> 
Um, so John Williams was drafted. I didn't mean to swear that badly. Love it. John Williams was drafted into the Air Force in 1951 for four years, where he ended up playing the piano and brass and conducted and arranged music for the US Air Force Band. Oh. And he attended music courses at the University of Arizona as part of his service as well. So the man basically never saw any active duty. He was basically drafted into the Air Force and immediately they were like, oh, we've accidentally drafted in our, like, this generation's Mozart. I mean, we're going to keep, like, luckily they were like, yeah, you carry on doing music. We're not going to make you, we're not going to make you do anything. You can just carry on doing music, basically. And uh, he moved to LA in the late 50s where he worked as a session musician for people like Henry Mancini. So, Um, like, uh, he believed he actually played on the Days of Wine and Summer. And he worked with Bernard Herrmann, Alfred Newman, Jerry Goldsmith, and loads of other iconic composers of that era, some of whom have been previously mentioned on this podcast. He he was play he played John Williams played on music that we've listened to by them. Oh shit, nice. which is incredible in, uh, in yeah, itself. Musician, yeah. Not only as stuff he's composed, he's also played on incredibly iconic pieces of music that mm. basically everyone knows. So yeah, is there anything you want to kind of? Uh, he also did the music for the 1984 LA Olympics. Mm. He did, yeah. Yeah, which is, I think, it's, that was a nice little, well, not nice little, but it's interesting, yeah. Yeah. So I would say John Williams, from what I've read, and, you know, kind of what you see online, generally when people talk about him, he's most accurately classed as a neo-romanticist composer. Mm. So the romantic composers, obviously, we know as like Tchaikovsky, Wagner, Strauss, those yeah, kind of people. Everyone knows that. And, I mean, <laughs> it's the era of romanticism. Yeah. It's the era of romantic art. The era, um, so yeah, he basically presents a return to like the style of music that they made, um, which is to say like intense emotional expression, you know, associated with their work, and in particular with their concepts of the the light motif or late motif, mm-hmm. um, where you use short recurring musical phrases like over and over again in the grander pieces of music that you compose. And those little pieces are associated with specific people, places, or ideas. So as soon as you hear a certain, as soon as like a certain character appears or a certain thing happens or a certain location appears, you hear the same bit of music each time that occurs. And so you come to associate the piece of music with that character, that place, that theme. And that was what a lot of these romantic composers did. They basically told stories. A lot of their their operas or, or their kind of, you know, um, their more like really long form kind of grand compositions were basically narratives, hence why it took, takes about four hours to play some of them. <laughs> yeah, and also um, just a uh, just a little thing like um, we'll get to like the actual Star Wars score itself, but like it was quite interesting when watching a documentary recently is that as you say, he brought back that big fifties sort of symphonic symphonic score, which actually got out fairer in the sixties. Like a lot more source music was being used, and a lot more like they were bringing in a lot more elements of like the time, so jazz and folk and stuff like that. Um, so the sort of Star Wars is in itself a bit of a throwback to yeah. to the kind of forties and fifties like big serial things mm-hmm. like um, the Mystery Men sort of things. Yeah, and um, this music was also a return to like that kind of thing. So yeah, yeah, Star Wars. So Star Wars, yeah, basically reinvigorated the orchestral score. Prior to Star Wars, yeah, it was all about kind of jazz and stuff, wasn't it? Really, in scores, um, and then Star Wars basically set the template for what film score and has probably remained since it came out. Pretty much, it's yeah. ne- I mean, obviously, people experiment and go in different directions, but in general, you know, like, the majority of films do what do the orchestral stuff. Mm-hmm. You just had that brief period between sort of the 40s and, and uh, sorry, the 50s through to, like, the sort of mid-70s, and then Star Wars came along and just changed it back again. So, uh, Williams's work on Star Wars overall features between 50 and 70 leitmotifs, mm. um, and this makes it one of the largest caches of themes in the history of film music. But what I found interesting is that apparently it still doesn't come close to Howard Shaw's work on The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbits, which apparently mm. has many, many more. But across all of the films, John Williams, yes, because has, has somewhere between 50 and 70 themes for characters, locations, events, like, which is insane. Which is insane, but also... Because they're so memorable as well. The yeah, thing is, I, I reckon me and you could probably remember the majority. If we heard them, we'd be like, oh, that's, that's, this is associated with, like, you just know it. Yeah. But what I found crazy, there's so many, and all of the, and ninety eight percent of them are iconic. Two, well, one in the original trilogy. Well, there's two characters that don't have themes, which is mad. So Han Solo doesn't have his own theme. Um, he only has one, which is shared with Princess Leia. Yeah. Um, and he has no name to track after him apart from Han the Princess. Mm-hmm. And this is going forward. We're not going to touch on these films today, but I think symptomatic of 
of this character's mishandling in the in the sequel trilogy. Finn also is the only only main character in the sequel trilogy not to have a, a motif. Really? He doesn't have a motif at all, no. Wow. Okay. Um so That yeah. is interesting. So even um Poe has a yeah. has a has a motif. He does, yeah. Wow. So yeah, I think to kind of set the kind of you know, because this is supposed to be about A New Hope and we've sort of been talking more generally about Williams, but to kind of set the um, story for A New Hope, I guess, um, George Lucas, the director, had kind of, he was this relatively no-name director um, at the time. He'd made a film called THX 118 or something along those lines, right? 138? 138, something like that. It's like a kind of dark, dour, sci-fi indie film. And... um, yeah, he was this relatively kind of untested um, director. I think after that, he then made graffiti, American Graffiti, right? With Harrison Ford? Yes. Yeah. Um, and so that was like a relatively big hit, but it was this kind of like teen kind of 50s set kind of sock throwback hop, kind yeah. of, yeah, sock hop kind of rock and roll kind of film. And um, he was very keen to make like this kind of, he wanted to tell this grand kind of story you know, set in kind of this distant world where he could build this like whole universe and whole kind of intense backstory and and really build this kind of space opera, basically. And um, the whole making of Star Wars was pretty much like kind of a disaster in a lot of ways. And a lot of people expected it to just be terrible. He was basically given no budget. He was like bounced around between teams and everyone who, every team like who worked, every every team and, and cast member who worked with him didn't really like him because he was a very reclusive man and and it, and, and they, they thought the dialogue was terrible, the world was incomprehensible and, and, and stupid and everyone thought it was just going to be this flop. And um, so they completed shooting and um, George Lucas took the film in its rough state to uh, Fox and he'd sort of compiled it together and edited it. It wasn't its final cut, but it was like kind of close to what it ended up being. Um, without the music, I'll say, um, which is the way that films generally go, is it's sort of the, f- the films, the music being attached to the film is kind of one of the last steps of the filmmaking process. So yeah, he took it to Fox anyway, and they loved it. Um, a lot of the higher ups at Fox, I think, I believe one of them cried uh, and said it was the best thing he'd ever seen. That feels a little bit hip hop. Feels, you feel, yeah, it's it's odd, but there we are. He he, yeah, one of the the higher ups who who saw the first cut of the film said it I mean, was like more we know the first cut is. That's very. <laughs> yeah but yeah they so they then thought oh my god we've got something incredible on our hands this is going to be a huge hit and so i think he then got more budget and was and it was allowed to kind of you know he had more faith put in him and um this is where his mate spielberg comes along so george lucas had like quite a good relationship with francis ford coppola and steven spielberg obviously two gigantic directors who were around at the time as well and um John Williams was hired for Star Wars on the recommendation of Spielberg to Lucas from his previous work on Jaws. Oh, yeah. So Williams yeah. had obviously done Jaws, and Jaws, obviously, everyone knows the music from Jaws as well. So. <laughs> and uh, he, you know, John Williams was tried and tested. Everyone knew how incredible this man was. And... Um, Originally, though, he was only hired to consult on music editing choices and yeah. to direct Lucas in his use of pre-existing classical pieces that Lucas wanted to use in the film. I find that fascinating. Yeah, that's research. really interesting, isn't it? Um, in a similar manner to 2001 A Space Odyssey, which itself was an influence on Star Wars, and you can see why Lucas kind of wanted to incorporate... You know, I don't think that's actually... A, you know, given what we know what Lucas became, you'd think, oh, that's classic, like, kind of weird, stupid decision-making from George Lucas to want to use pre-existing classical tracks. But actually, looking at 2001, I'm like, oh, actually, that's not a mad decision because that could have potentially worked. You know, without knowing what Star Wars became, I'm like, that's actually not a terrible idea. But, you know, he he believed that using these pieces um, that the audience already knew would give them an emotional familiarity in this, like, bonkers world that they didn't know. And he also wanted to allude to, like, the underlying fantasy elements of the film rather than its sci-fi aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. He, he loved the sci-fi aesthetic and was married to that, but he really wanted it to come across as more of a fantasy. He wanted to tell that fantasy story. I feel like um, when I was doing a lot of my research, what I found interesting is, like, a lot of the words that kept coming up um, with warmth and familiarity. Yeah. And, like, for, you know, it's, it's a, I guess, ostensibly, it's a, it's a sci-fi film, but what it is basically is a... It's part fantasy, part familial drama. Mm. And like what John Williams ended up doing was kind of bringing this sort of warm romance to it. Yeah. Uh, rather than like sort of the big kind of brash um, 
quite uh, looming big pieces of like you know classical music. It's quite in a lot of the ways, the score is quite intimate and warm and stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, because it, it basically Star Wars is is a space opera, but it's it's essentially just like human stories. Yes, definitely. And and Lucas has acknowledged that he he said himself that the success of Star Wars lies in its emotional appeal more than anything else. Um, which I definitely agree with. I'm I'm kind of amazed that he recognises that actually. And um, I think the music is one of the biggest parts of that. Almost more than anything else, the music mm-hmm. is is one of the huge parts of that emotional appeal. Those those intense moments where the score really hits its highs. And you, I, we we rewatched uh, A New Hope yesterday, and there was multiple times where I got goosebumps from the score. Still get goosebumps to this day. Still get excited by the music of that film, like regardless of how many times I've seen it and heard it. So yeah. Um, anyway, so Lucas wanted to use these kind of pre-existing classical tracks, and um, Williams eventually managed to con- convince him to use original stuff. Although what is one of the things that is really interesting is that the influence from Lucas's original choices are still hev- very present. Okay. So the main title thing, you know, the da 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 da. Yeah. So. Did you expertly play that earlier? Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, everyone knows that. Actually, very heavily influenced by the main theme from the Ronald Reagan film *King's Row*. Ah, you've stolen my little tip. <laughs> um, so yeah, and and that is fascinating. You can listen to that, and it's very. You can hear it. You you like it's like wow okay that 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 he hasn't actually he's he's built on it which is good and and that's the thing about art the great art like good artists build upon what other artists have done great artists steal um, and Williams like you can't really disagree like he has basically kind of stolen it and then just added more to it mm-hmm. and um, oh also if you want a great bit of um, you want to go full circle so as you said it's it's inspired by the uh, film King's Row which starred Ronald Reagan who is famous. For having a well, one of his big things as president was installing a global space weapons program called Star Wars. Star Wars, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, also, with Williams um, Lucas's original choices, the the track uh, off of the score for episode, uh, for A New Hope that plays over the stuff that happens in the Dune Sea yeah. on Tatooine is basically the Rite of Spring, the Sacrifice by Stravinsky, and that is even closer. It's exactly the same. I, I found a video where they play them at the same time. So they have they have the original scene where C-3PO is wandering over the Dune Sea um, right at the start of the film when him and R2-D2 crash land on Tatooine. And yeah, they play them over one another and you can barely tell. It, it's basically the exact same piece of music. Uh, apparently, from my research as well, um, the, the piece uh, which is called uh, Dune Sea of Tatooine uh, also has influences from the soundtrack of Bicycle Thieves Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the Italian neoliberalism uh, film from yeah. the 60s scored by Alessandro Cisogini Cisogini just thought I'd add that a little bit yeah yeah so yeah uh, you know as I mentioned with the themes earlier uh, Williams's music for Star Wars that he ended up writing is, is quite unique in terms of film scores in that it's very dense with themes compared to uh, like most general film score. So he generally uses about 17 themes on average in each two hours of film, which is very heavy compared to others. So most composers would shy away from this because it's seen as like too musically dense for an audience that's supposed to be more preoccupied with the visuals. And I think obviously that again lends itself, that again is very much obviously part of the genius of this man, that he can break from the tradition of film scoring in this way. And yet it works. It's, it's, would be seen as risky, and yet he's made it work to be the most influential and memorable film score of all time. Yeah. So Williams uh, recorded the score for Star Wars with the London Symphony Orchestra, um, and they recorded it in 12 days over eight sessions in March 1977. In the first four days of recording, this this I find this hilarious as a kind of... This is just so typical for the story of, of Star Wars yeah, um, yeah. and the making of this film, like how fucking somehow ramshackle it was, and yet it came out incredible. In the first four days of recording, the orchestra recorded 82 takes of different pieces. And in Jesus. the... in the Well, that's the thing. That's in the first four days of recording, they recorded 82 takes. In the last four days of recording, they recorded nearly 140 takes. So they almost doubled their output of recording oh, they must have been swearing. in the last four days. Uh, and that, that peaked with uh, forty-eight takes in one day at one point in the last <laughs> in the last four days of recording. Uh, oh, so and, and I think that really tells a story of like panicked, I think, yeah. I I feel like they panicked. Yeah, 
I feel like they they got given like this incredible incredible pieces of music, and there was probably so much deliberation over like, oh, we really want to get this right over these, you know. And then they hit the halfway mark. They were like, shit, we've got four days left, and we've only done eighty-two takes. And then they're just cranking out takes for the last four days, and they always double their output. Like, how insane is that? Then I bet there was such a panic in that recording studio. And and one of the things again that's interesting about uh, Williams and the way that he breaks with tradition from composers is in the way that he. Um, arranges his orchestration so in Star Wars in particular he makes use of a huge brass section and a very comparatively smaller string section yeah I can think I can yeah I can definitely hear that now you said that yeah Mm. and and he arranges it with the I believe originally the strings are actually further outfield than the brass players whereas normally you would have the strings closer to the recording instruments because of obviously the way that you know sound the sound is picked up the brass is much heavier and thicker in sound than the strings are so you kind of want the strings closer to the recording instrument so that they're picked up more clearly um and he actually didn't do this i believe he he actually placed them so there was less of them and they were placed further up than they normally would be uh, and that gives it this huge kind of like heroic kind of brassy sound it there's that real oomph yeah, to yeah. star wars music that hits you in the gut and i think he recognized the physicality of sound as well as just like the kind of the more the more temporal kind of way that it works i think he really recognized because when we watched it last night again i made sure that the tv was switched i made sure that our television had like its bass booster on i put the surround sound on i i had it all set up and like it i think that was part of it i hadn't done that the time before when we watched a new hope i hadn't done that and i think it definitely hit better last night Mm -hmm. And and i think he recognizes the strength of that um and yeah, and that's that's quite an interesting sort of way that he operates. That this this kind of the, one of the biggest composers of all time breaks with the form in ways that kind yeah, yeah. of more left of center like avant garde musicians and composers would. And I read an interesting point from other composers, having spoken about John Williams, that he actually does like it's really interesting because he's huge and commercial, but he actually incorporates elements of avant garde way more successfully than pretty much any other composer has done before him. Okay. Um. So I thought I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they finished recording and they had 88 minutes of score after its final edit after they put together all the takes they wanted to use and stuff like that and had all the tracks listed Um, and the album actually only has 75 minutes of the 88 minutes of score that was selected okay why is that do you know Uh, I think because of the format at the time they couldn't get that was as much time as they could get on on it Um, but that's still the case to this day you listen to the Star Wars score on stream and the one that was put out a couple of yeah. Years ago by Disney, the remastered one, still 75 minutes. So oh, there's, there's 13 minutes of score that potentially is used in the film, or bits of that final 13 minutes are used in the film that we actually don't hear on the album, which is interesting. And to provide musical variety, the music doesn't follow the film's chronological order because of the way oh. that the theme, because of the way that um, Williams incorporates themes right. so heavily into his music. They okay. had to really pay attention to how they structured the album because otherwise certain tracks coming after other tracks... You'd you're you would you would be forgiven in thinking it's the, still the same track, so they had to oh. restructure it in terms to give us a, a, a variety. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that at all. Yeah. Okay. So the album's in in non chronological order. After the album's release, which was after the film's release, uh, the main title peaked at the number number ten on the Billboard's Hot 100. <laughs> wow. And Miko's disco version of the song became a number one single in America and in other places in the world. Oh, great! So not Amazing. only was this film an unprecedented success and was huge but the this score was yeah. an unprecedented success in a way that no other film score had been before it yeah, it was yeah. huge um the soundtrack became the best-selling symphonic album of all time <laughs> yeah i mean that's not that surprising but... no and in 2004 it was preserved by the library of congress in the national recording registry yeah yeah and the american film institute have named it the most memorable score of all time for an american film recorded by a british orchestra <laughs> Uh, interestingly when the film came out the only awards body who didn't award it solely it the best um, the award for best score were the Saturn Awards who gave the score for Star Wars the uh, best score of the year award tied with third Close Encounters of the Third Kind also by John Williams <laughs> so uh, he he received one award for two of his different bits of output in the same year and yeah so like that basically gives you an idea of just like how incredible this was, you know, this, this, it was unprecedented. No, no one had ever heard or seen anything like this before at the time. And, um, you know, we're heaping a lot of praise on Williams for 
obvious and very well-deserved reasons, but I also want to give a quick shout-out to Kenneth Wonberg, oh, okay. who is the film's music editor. Oh, okay. Um, he really deserves a share in the praise of how iconic the music is, because without his... Without him editing the music and, and cutting it, cutting the parts that he does to the iconic scenes with like, like cueing it perfectly. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Like the music is incredible and stands alone, but I don't think it, it, he's managed to make it even more memorable because yeah. we associate certain pieces of music just with like the right bits of imagery. Pretty much, we've said this off air. You could pretty much, you could pretty much view the film obviously if you're familiar with the film, like just by listening to the different tracks, you know what's happening on screen. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and you can tell, yeah, you can pretty much, when I was listening to the soundtrack, I was like, oh yeah, I, I know what's probably going on here. And the inextricable link between the music and the imagery, I mean, obviously it's the whole point of what's going on, but like, I, I, I struggle to think of a film that's just, you could literally just play a piece of music and I could just tell you what's happening without any, basically any delay. I'm not, I'm not even that, I've only watched New Hope three times, so... Mm. Yeah, exactly. And, um, like, one of the most, you know, again, that was something that I realised last night was just, like, fucking hell, this is edited so well, this music, in that, like, one of the best hero shots in all of cinema, when Luke sort of steps out of of his house and looks at the kind of, I think, I believe it's the the binary sunset with two suns that are setting over Tatooine, and he sort of has one leg raised up on the, on, you know, kind of the part of his house or whatever, and he sort of looks out across the across the desert at the two suns setting, and the score swells. And uh, is it is it the Force theme, or is the piece of music called Binary Sunset? Technically, well, um, various things like call it different things. The, the, I didn't see anything that actually said Force theme. Like, mm. I think it's technically now called Twin Suns, but I, it, is the force, it, is, it is the Force theme because it plays whatever a character uses the force yeah um that's play so it basically is the force theme yeah. yeah but this incredibly emotive version of the force theme swells as the camera is behind luke watching him walk out away from his house and puts his leg up on this thing and then perfectly as the camera cuts round to the front of mark hamill to show his kind of hair blowing in the wind and him like illuminated by this orange sort of sunset it swells up into like the grand like emotional peak of the piece at the perfect time so it's like the most incredible piece of music probably in the whole film, highlighting probably one of the best hero shots in all of cinema. Mm-hmm. It's just like, that is so perfect, and it's such a goosebumps-inducing moment. It's nothing, it's nothing. It's just an image of a man standing there, but it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, Kenneth Womberg, who has worked his entire career with John Williams, by the way, he edits oh, okay. all of all of, all of the... all yeah. of He's John Williams' music editor, basically. Um, yeah, shout out to him because he's amazing as well. Could I just jump in as well with if we on, while on the subject of Twins and had more to say on that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, feel free to take the lead now, Sonny Jim. I'm, I'm, I've, I've okay, yeah. So the things about I mean, there's so many things about that Twin Sun scene. So the first, the first thing I'll, I'll talk about is like how it relates to kind of what I think is one of the biggest things about I think Star Wars and John Williams's music is that it has. There's a lot of wonder in a lot of not just John Williams's Star Wars stuff, but in all his things, there's wonder and like childlike sort of like sort of amazement at things. And I yeah. think that him looking across that is like that sort of wondering what else is out there. Mm. And I feel like there's a weird unintentional sort of meta thing of like Luke yearns. He's he's obviously at this point that he's looking out. He's on this sort of moisture farm like in the middle of nowhere. And he dreams of like a life amongst the stars, which he gets. But it's like as as an audience watching Star Wars, we dream for what we dream for. You know, that's why we love Star Wars because we love escapism and imagining all this stuff. Mm. So it's kind of a parallel between us looking out across and Luke. So mm-hmm. we're literally the eyes of Luke, mm-hmm. and so, it also works in tandem with Lucas's either intentional or unintentional incredible world building. That okay. again, it hints at so much more in that universe. There's so many yeah. tiny little bits of world building from George Lucas. That is just, yeah, again, like you say, yeah, with that music, with the wonder and like the wow, what else is out there kind of thing, those, they work in tandem as well in an incredible way. And um, what's quite interesting as well is that um, what I read in the article, obviously, is that it's Luke's theme is also the Force theme, which is the music that plays, and the idea that he's not yet very aware of being Force sensitive, but it's that idea of that very sort of very pulpy idea of destiny, but playing the Force theme before he knows that he's force sensitive mm-hmm. kind of calls to his destiny mm-hmm. so now that i've finished like sort of the narrative of this score we're going to go into i mean we just touched on it there but we're going to go more into like what jules has to say about more kind of the emotional side and our own sort of feelings on this score and stuff so yeah take it away. kind of sums up our relationship 
Um, so yeah, uh, uh, well, where to start? with so much. Um, we'll leave the we'll leave the comedy stuff to the end. Um, well, one one things I think is um, that kind of uh, is interesting that some sums up again the sort of dichotomy of Star Wars being this big, larger than life adventure, but also very kind of um, in a way that the score is also at once very big and emotional, but also very kitsch and camp as well. Mm. And I feel it's interesting. You've got all the brass that kind of is the heroic stuff, but you've also got like the little bit of the woodwind, mm-hmm. um, which kind of is very kitchen camp, and kind of also I think it helps paint them as not just swashbuckling, swashbuckling heroes, but they're also the underdogs. Yeah, yeah. That's, not, that's quite important to sort of... It's also very fantasy. Yeah, yeah. Which again is that kind of, it's, it's almost like, yeah, a lot of that kind of, a lot of that little woodwind, all like little piccolos and flutes are often associated with like woodland creatures and like nymphs and fairies yeah, and that kind of yeah, stuff. So yeah, it's, yeah. It kind of again ground Star Wars in Lucas's more fantasy intentions. I think it very subtly actually tells you that this is a more a fantasy film than a sci-fi film. Oh uh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the Jawas are almost like the nymphs, the tricks, the nymphs, or the tricks, the kind of fairies or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it's there's a lot of subtle stuff at work here that kind of it's giving you something unique whilst also telling you what to expect. So that you never sort of get your hopes up for something that it isn't. Like this isn't two thousand and one. This is Conan. Yeah. The music, I think, that plays uh, a lot, very similarly to when they're um, when all the Jawas are happening, it captured by the Jawas, um, and when they, yeah, there's it very much reminds me with all the kind of very kitsch kind of woodwind stuff. Um, it reminds me of a lot of Bush music. Okay. There's a bit where um, Jules is referencing the Mighty like, Bush for anyone who hasn't seen it. Yeah. Cult, cult British sitcom. Um, Do you mean um, like the womp, womp, womp? One and it's like yeah 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 you can't fill in gaps where it's not there. But uh, one of the interesting things is we won't be covering the, one of the most iconic bits of score, which is in episode five, which is the Imperial March. Mm. But what I found fascinating was that Darth Vader, even though he makes a pretty impactful entrance into the, into the film, he doesn't have the Imperial March, doesn't play. Mm. And instead it's like a sort of uh, rush of brass that goes, duh, duh, duh. Yes, yeah. It and does. it's quite interesting, I thought, because it also, it's not just one bit, it does happen when he's on screen or not. Mm. So it's kind of like his four motif. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I, which I found quite interesting. Yeah, I, yeah, I hadn't sort of picked up on that, yeah. Um, I, it's pretty similar, I think, that every time he has, it is like a sort of rush of. It's like that dun, 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 sort of thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the one. It's very sort of bit, obviously militaristic as the Imperial marches, but it's yeah, it's not quite as like, iconic. Um, oh yeah, another thing is uh, that I'm again on rewatching. Uh, it's quite an interesting bit, like um, when similar similar time period to when uh, the Twin Sons, uh, when Luke returns and his aunt and uncle have been um, turned to ash. <laughs> Um, turn to bright red bloody skeletons yeah um, there's a bit where like it kind of plays a kind of a little medley of like the motifs and Luke stands there and I didn't notice it before but he really like there's a, the real conveying of rage yeah in him and like it's like you don't really associate him quite he's quite a holy than thou figure in four mm-hmm. but yeah that, that bit I never picked up on and the music kind of helps to sort of you know there's some slightly um more sort of uh, creepy stuff in that piece of music when he's looking over the ash of his, basically his parents. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about the Tuscan Raiders. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know really who to point the finger at in this respect, but, you know, Star Wars actually has quite a history of uh, racism. Mm. And I feel like we get, sonically and visually, one of the, one of the first of many racially insensitive um, depictions. Mm-hmm. So the Tuscan Raiders, um, when what they're depicted as like barbarians and savages who, who communicate in grunts and like wave sticks mm-hmm. around, very and, like portrayed as like very tribal. There's a lot of like symbols and like kind of like yeah, yeah, unci- unci- uncivilized and stuff. Yeah, kind um, of nomadic desert kind of tribe stuff. Yeah, which obviously is could be portrayed as uh, you know Middle Eastern cultures or 
was quite interesting as well. The drums played the sort of the music yeah. for them is drums and it's yeah. non-Western drums. Yes, um, I don't know if it's African, but it's definitely sort of. I would I would say maybe African or at least non-Western. Mm. So I thought that was very interesting. So in like me. a very like non-Western kind of meter as well, like the way that the the kind of drum beat plays out, it's very like kind of off, kind of almost offbeat or like almost like a weird kind of like it's not polyrhythmic, but it's kind of like when you have that more unconventional rhythm in a polyrhythm, it's like that one. Yeah. Rather than yeah, which is you can sort of associate with like more kind of Eastern cultures and their kind of non-Western style of doing yeah. music. Yeah, I, I definitely see what you mean. Yeah. Which again, in in a obviously yes, it's it is very it is obviously insensitive, um, and obviously Stars is from you know it's it's from the seventies, yeah. so it's we can't expect it. it. It's it's kind of it's kind of this horrible double edged sword because to Western ears it works in creating this idea of like it's it's like it's foreign, so like that sets the tone for the Tuscan Raiders yeah, to, yeah. to like the ways that our kind of problem our brains have been problematically wired. It works, mm-hmm. and it's obviously yeah, it's this kind of double-edged sword that you have to wrangle with because on the one hand it's not great and obviously I don't think they would do something like that you know they've kind of gone what tried to gone ways to rectify that in Star Wars in the Mandalorian they showed the Tusken Raiders to actually be a much more yeah, cultured uh, yeah. and 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 kind of under misunderstood people than we'd initially been led to thought which I think is them trying to rectify kind of previous portrayals in Star Wars and they've obviously gone away from a lot of the racist portrayals of aliens that definitely appear more in the prequels and stuff but yeah, it's yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree with you. That's, that's a really good point. Um, I'm going to do something perverse, and I've got two bits of stuff um, from the beginning, from basically the crawl and the last scene before I talk about the cantina stuff. Because <laughs> I feel like the cantina stuff should come last. Yeah. Um, so the opening crawl, according to Mark, I found a tweet by Mark Hamill from from an article um, where apparently there was a, before the idea for the opening crawl, George Lucas wanted a Daffy Duck cartoon before Star Wars. Really? You can find that tweet, yeah. He says, um, George apparently, yeah, um, uh, he wanted the audience to know this wasn't going to be a serious sci-fi film, so he was going to have a Daffy Duck cartoon play before Star Wars. <laughs> um, Incredible. So that, that's from the words of Luke Skywalker. Yeah. So. Well, it's quite interesting because the stuff about George Lucas having not wanted, ha- sorry, having wanted um, pre-existing music in Star Wars rather than an original score comes from the mouth of John Williams because George Lucas actually denies that. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I find it interesting that probably I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of this stuff is true from what we know about Lucas, but I love that he's kind of retroactively being like, no, no, <laughs> I didn't do that. not true. Yeah, I want was... a Jar Jar in it from the start. <laughs> I thought of Jar Jar in the 70s. I wanted this whole film to be about Jar Jar. <laughs> and then also, he's not this character I made to proclaim American racism. Um, and there's also uh, jumping way right to the last scene. I think what's quite cool, as, as we said, like J- John Williams' score is very narrative. And the whole idea that, in case you didn't know, Star Wars was originally uh, a one and done thing. Like, they, George Lucas had an idea for a trilogy, but he didn't know how well the first one would go. So the first one was written, so that it could, it could be that one. You could just watch one yeah. and leave it. Mm-hmm. And I find That's it, why it was called The Star Wars. It yes, it was originally called The Star Wars, yeah. And um, the ending scene when they're in the throne room. Very much feels like an ending. Like you could just leave it there, and the music as well is very much like finale. It's sort mm. of like it's like triumphant. We won. Yes, yes. There's no, there's no sense of like, oh, maybe there's something we might have to get back in our type. We might get back in our X wings. It's like, oh no, we've got the medals, and it's all rousing. It's like a royal ceremony. Everyone's smiling and stuff. I just found that quite interesting. It was very like, it, yeah, this was like an end. Yeah, there's no. It's very similar to like the music at the end of Six. Mm-hmm. It, it's just yeah, yeah. Very rousing and quite royal as well. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. I think yeah, it's one of my favourite bits actually. In it, it's just really, it's really, it gives me goosebumps as well. What that final bit? It's incredibly victorious, isn't it? Yeah. It, it strays the line of being cheesy, yes. but with Williams' talent, I just don't think anything he does can be like too cheesy because it's so good. Yeah, yeah. it often straddles close to it, but yeah, it's just and it slides straight into the it's straight. Straight back into like the, the end credits, of, which is obviously the end, the first thing. So mm-hmm. it's just like, oh, he's incredibly good at um, blending his bits of like different bits that he writes together. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, which again lends itself, to, uh, or sorry, comes from his use of themes and stuff like that. But he's incredibly talented at kind of yeah blending all of his compositions together and, and flowing them into one another. It's it's one of his 
yeah, one of his many talents, but one of the ones that I think should be held in highest regard. Um, and now we should get into the. I have, oh, I'm gonna have so much fun. We're, we're gonna get into the cantina. We're gonna get into the famous cantina stuff. Um, you had some th- vibes. Yeah, so you had some stuff about, um, so I'll leave the trivia, there's some cool trivia about the band, but mm-hmm. I'll leave that because you got some, so I, I feel like we've probably um, both done that. Yeah. Um, so the only bit of like non-symphonic score in the entire thing is a couple of jazz, mm. jizz tracks, um, <laughs> which is the, the... And also interestingly, which I obviously knew, but had sort of hadn't thought about the consequences of, diegetic. It's a piece of diegetic yes. score, which is interesting, yeah, which is fascinating, is. which yeah. is not common for sci-fi. Like, no, only no, no, no. really in terrible sci-fi and fantasy is their diegetic score. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very rare. I think The Witcher manages to achieve it. I think The Witcher TV show and The Witcher games have amazing pieces of diegetic score. But often when it's done, it's usually only works in comedy. Like a yeah. parody of fantasy or a parody of sci-fi. Mm. But, yeah, I hadn't thought about actually like just how normalised that is in the world of Star Wars. That there's these bands that perform music, and I don't think of it as like, oh, this is like dumb or cheesy or whatever. Yeah. Like, it's so well done. Having done more research on um, John Williams, it makes sense that there's jazz because obviously mm. he comes from a jazz, jazz background, yeah. so it makes perfect sense. He'd love jazz. to incorporate a bit of jazz into it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had another bit of again. I for some reason during my re- as I did my research, the, the beret became more and more on. Um, so, uh, so I thought about this as well. Is this about how basically, like, with one, like, the inclusion of jazz music, it's being played by aliens? Oh, uh, well, actually, that's going a bit. F- carry on, because uh, that's not where I was going with it. But carry on. Well, I just think that's also fascinating. You know, building off of the point you mentioned earlier about the Tuscan Raiders. Yeah, it's yeah. also interesting that, like, also with this presentation of like a black art form, it's yeah. being played by a bunch of like eight weird looking aliens. Yeah, 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 and um, it's. Played in a nefarious bar for the criminals. Yes, a bunch of shady. Yes. Yeah, and it's like obviously oh, the... well, a hive of scum and villainy is. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you know, this is basically Star Wars equivalent of Harlem, mm-hmm. and yeah, you've got you know, Obi Wan Kenobi saying it's like one of the worst places, and like, uh, you know, in in the classic Star Wars, you know, Star Wars is like a fifty serial sort of um, thing, and in those in the stuff that you know, um, especially some of the stuff that John Williams scored. Um, Jazz was incorporated into some of these 50s stuff, but it was always for like the dodgy dealings kind of thing. Mm. So Star Wars is aping that, and mm. so it's bringing the jazz in. But if you consider the social climate in which both well, both these films, but especially the 50s films was, mm-hmm. it's kind of like, oh, this, this, the demonization of jazz, which is quite prevalent. Yeah, I just thought that's quite interesting. Mm, definitely. Even though it's a, a chin that slaps, it's like. <laughs> yeah, I think also, I think, I definitely think Star Wars is. Because I agree with your point, and I do, yeah. and I do think it's interesting. It does, however, break with the more problematic versions of that from the fifties, in the sense that, like, whilst we are told that the bar is a hive of scum and villainy, yeah. it, to be honest, it actually feels very innocent and quite yeah, fun for the most it's part. It's fine, yeah. Like it's it's, it's actually it's that at the bar that it costs look. Yeah, but yeah. Apart from that. But apart from that, and it's kind of pastiching that assumption that, like, before it's almost like a comedic beat. So we hear, you know, Obi-Wan turns to Luke and says, ah, Moss Eisley, a hive of scum and villainy, you know, be Moss on your guard brothers. or whatever. Moss Eisley, yeah. What did I say? No, no, I was joking, because the Moss Eisley brothers. <laughs> right, yeah. Oh, God. Who's that one? <laughs> oh, <yeah>. um, <laughs> I'm not going to say the second line. Like, sexy <laughs> um, so, yeah, we kind of get that. And then, like, in the next beat, it's like, Oh no, sorry, actually, there's a bit before that, but that's kind of our lasting impression prior to entering the bar that, oh, this place is a hive of scum and villainy. We enter the bar and immediately there's a shot of this alien, like, with, like, weird store kind, like, looking around, and it's like, and there's all these weird, like, looking funny aliens all having, like, a giggle and stuff like that. Like, I think it's almost a comedic beat taking the piss out of those 50s films that did that. It's actually like, no, actually, this isn't. It's fun and harmless. Yeah. This is actually really fun and really cool and harmless, and hence why people love that. Yeah, it's yeah, got yeah. such an air of like fun and innocence. Yeah, that yeah, people, yeah. Like that's one of the mo- most iconic things to come out of Star Wars. Yeah, I wasn't being totally serious. No, I know, I know, I know. But it's just fun to do that. But I, I think actually, I think maybe there's potential brownie points there. In that, it's 
pastiching and taking the piss out of that use of that in the 50s. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. would have been racist in the 50s, but actually the way it's being used there is actually like, no, this is great and fun. Yeah. I guess, yeah, and uh, we saw him meet Han Solo, so... Mm. Uh, and Han Chu, mm. so... I don't think it plays in the actual cut that we see in like in the film, but on the soundtrack there's still pans. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. still pans. There is. Which I thought was really cool. And it brings a bit of Caribbean flair to Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I gotta love that. Gotta love the steel drum, the boobams that are being played, and the toms. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's quite a, quite an interesting sort of percussion setup on that track. Um it it it, uh, it very much amused me to think of like the idea that they could be rasters. Mm. They could be like intergalactic rasters. Um, and well, it, fortunately, George Lucas did that with the fucking Gungans, and yeah, yeah. But I was going to say, um, if you do meet, well, morning, if you do meet these uh, these intergalactic rasters, the the greeting you go is Jedi and I. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and on on the topic of of, of like Rastafarianism and sort of that Caribbean culture, I did find two absolutely credible. Um, reggae remixes of Star Wars tracks. Oh, brilliant! So there's um, just called Star Wars uh, by A4 Reggae Orchestra, mm-hmm. and it's like a rootsy kind of like Bob Marley esque track. Oh, excellent! Yeah, it's really cool. It's got slight little dub noises as well, like dub sound effects as well. It's really cool. And then what might be the best thing I've ever come across is something called Imperial Reggae by Panononi All Star Skull Orchestra from 2016, <laughs> and it's it's a dub version of the Imperial March. Oh, brilliant. Complete with toasting. Oh, my God. Which, which has the line, uh, the large him veda. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, uh, and also, uh, like, uh, continuing, with the, uh, it's a surprising amount of dub I've got in this. Um, this the Cantina band also, uh, actually, what they actually call, what they actually call, Prentice? What the Cantina band actually called? The Cantina band are actually called Figrin Dan and the Modal Nodes. <laughs> That is a incredible note. I yeah. love that note. Um, and the the, the the I'm gonna tag that with the name of the song they play is actually called Mad About Mad Me. Mad About Me. Yeah, I had this down. It goes three layers deep. It's jizz music. It's figuring down in the modal notes, and the song is actually called Mad About Me. Something I wasn't aware of until yesterday. How long I've loved Star Wars for, and I still have things to find out about it. But the song is called Mad About Me, which is apparently revealed through a Star Wars trading card game. Really, which is brilliant. Yeah, amazing. Um, and they, they they have a second. The second song is literally called Campi- uh, Cantina Two. Cantina Two. Yeah. But like, uh, it, it's so cool. It, like, it's 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 kind of like shuffly jazz, mm. but on it is like sort of. Um, I couldn't work out whether it was more dub bass or whether it was more like Bootsy Parliament bass. Okay, yeah, on yeah, it. yeah. It's the kind of a squelchy, like, boom, 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 like yeah. that kind of like very much that sort of not slap bass, but like that kind of muted kind of bass. Mm. I was like, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think on the first track it sounds like almost like T chess bass. The first track sounds like T chess bass. Yeah, but the second one very much like fuzzy kind of funky bass. Yeah, yeah. On unless you had something, I have even more on the modal notes. No, go for it, go for it. Let's hear about. So um, let's hear about that figuring down. Um, there's another band in uh, in the uh, Star Wars universe that comes out in six, which is called the Max Rebo Band, mm-hmm. and apparently Fingrin, uh, Fingrin, what's his name? Sorry, Figrin. 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 Oh, Figrin Dan. <laughs> Figrin Dan's brother plays in the Max Rebo Band. Oh, he's that one, right? Because yeah, yeah, the species yeah. are called Biff, I believe. Biff. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. what that species is. Yeah, there is a Biff in the Max Rebo Band. Yeah, playing like the kind of weird saxophone-looking thing. Yeah, and I wondered whether there was sort of Oasis Blur rivalry in the Star Wars <laughs> universe between the Max Rebo Band and um, and the uh, Metal Notes. Oh, brilliant! I would love that. I mean, who said? Um, that's what I was going to ask you. This I feel like figuring down in the Metal Notes of Blur. Okay. Because, like, when we get the songs that we get in episode six, it's much more like, you know... Okay, yeah, yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that's... It's, it's, that's more, avant- it's more weirder and, like, slightly avant-garde with, like, Figuring Dan. And then yes. when we get the Max Rebo band, it's much more it's more that mainstream Star Wars shit, you know? So you're thinking Figuring, it, figuring is, like, Graham Coxon. He's kind of more weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. likes incorporating that weird stuff. And then we get that, that generic that commercial funny? trash from the Max Rebo band. <laughs> Who's that um, furry prick who does the shouting into the microphone? Oh, fucking... I can't remember his name. I remember Cy Snoodles. He definitely has a name, but I can't but remember he, his name. He's very much Liam Gallagher because he's sort of like shouting right yeah, into the... Yeah. yeah. I, just, I just love the idea of like 
you know, it's just like they've both been competing for like the Jabba's gig, for Jabba's gig. And like, yeah, it's just like, oh, fucking. Yeah, because also the Max Rebo band have got the bigger gig. Yeah. Which again works with the yeah. whole, they're the Oasis. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. like the Blur are playing in this kind of dive bar. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're Camden, yeah. It's like it's like the Camden bars they used to yeah. play. <laughs> Oh my god, yeah, Camden really is a hype of scum and villainy, Jesus. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you, John Williams, for your incredible service to film music and, and art in general. And uh, yeah, may the fourth be with you. You've been listening to Sink or Swim, a podcast by Prentice Mitchell and Jules Bastano. If you want more from the pod, you can find us at Sink or Swim Pod, all one word, on Instagram and YouTube, and you can find us at Sink or Swim on Facebook. To get in touch, please send us an email at singleswimpod at gmail.com. You can listen to this pod wherever you find your podcasts with full episodes and clips going off on YouTube as well.